feels to me like we are having more and more conversations, not for the podcast, but conversations with people that we might be working with, colleagues, in, in the kind of broadest sense, that we're having more conversations about narrative and creative work and using mm. the principles that we work with in narrative folding that into our creative work as people mm. who make theater you know write write direct devise um and so it felt like you know okay so let's let's pursue those conversations and we've talked to dipti um and there's a little bit of narrative or origin that it feels like it's worth revisiting because it's a great story really mm. um narrative origin story of how you became involved with Paul and Murray, Paul Brody and Murray Nossel, who are the narrative founders, creating a piece of theatre called Two Men Talking. Hmm. And because that's, you know, that's at the very heart of narrative. And that was and that was a piece of theatre, a piece of performance. So it's it feels like we've come around full circle to come back to using mm. narrative to create pieces of work. Mm. Um, so that's the idea for this conversation. I, I don't really know what my first question to you ab <laughs> about that is. Um, but well, what, I could well, just... What's, what is Two Men Talking? What is Two Men Talking? Hmm. Well, Two Men Talking is a theatrical event. It's a theatre piece, broadly speaking. Um... I would also say that Two Men Talking is a space, is a kind of mindset as well. But let's get on to that. Um, Two Men Talking was a piece of theatre that I helped create in 2001, 2002, we, when we started working on it, uh, which was an opportunity for two men, Paul Brody and Murray Nossel, to tell their stories to a listening public. And the, the backstory is that I knew Paul Brody um, because I was at drama school with him. And that so, was when? So drama school in 1986 in London at the drama studio, I met this tall South African doctor and that's how he introduced himself. Hmm. I'm a trained doctor and we it was a postgraduate theatre acting course all of us there for a year um, from lots of different uh, walks of life really but mostly most of us I would say were coming off either working in the industry a bit or coming straight out of further education so and that was at drama studio the drama studio in Ealing and Paul was there having trained as a doctor for however many years and um, starting to do his kind of residencies that early part of being a doctor out in the world and then giving it all up and that was all I knew he'd given it up to pursue his dream so that's 1986 mm. in 1990 I visited Paul in New York and I remember so clearly sitting down in this pizza joint on Broadway, uh, my, it was my first trip to New York and it was the first time I'd seen Paul on that trip and he'd moved from, from London to America. He was now practising as a doctor um, and doing a psych psychiatry training. So he was training to be a psychiatrist. And so he'd given it all up. He'd given all this acting up and all I knew was that... Um, you know, he'd pursued it for a bit, but he found himself, you know, coming out of auditions, feeling terribly abused by the whole process of like, yes, next, that kind of revolving door thing of auditions, coming out saying, how dare they treat me like that? I'm a doctor, for God's sake. <laughs> and realising actually he, that's, it was part of his identity to be a doctor and he pursued that. So I'm sitting there in this pizza joint and he tells me why he went to drama school. And why he went to drama school was that he discovered in 1985 that he was HIV positive, very simply. 
You know, he'd, he'd been on an extended trip to San Francisco to work in a hospital there. He'd contracted HIV there, had come back, had some tests and discovered that he had what he thought was a death sentence. He literally thought he had a year to live. And so he applied to drum school. He was like, sorry, I'm going to do the thing I've always wanted to do. Applied to drama school, came and told nobody. Told, I think he actually told one tutor and he told one other student who then went on to become his life partner, Simon. And um, the rest of us just uh, loved being around this smart, funny, gregarious man. So in 1990, I'm sitting in this pizza joint and he tells me that story and it hits me in the gut because it's 1990. I mean, it's he, okay, so he'd survived those five years and he was telling me about being on AZT and about what that was like and how ill it made him. Um, but he said, I'm okay today. Yeah, uh, and how was it at that point? How was his health and what was his prognosis in 1990? Well, he, he occurred to me as a healthy person. You know, he, he was out in the world, you know, managing this res- psychiatric residency. I, th- I think it was really hard because he was ill, but he didn't look it to me. And, and I thought, wow, Paul is, is doing well. And he said, I'm doing well, but I have to have this continual monitoring. I think what happened then was his T, T cell count went down steadily over the next couple of years. And just as um, it was kind of hitting its lowest, the, the massive kind of safety net of the antiretroviral drugs came in and they caught him. And... Um, He's still with us today. Yeah, which is f- fantastic and an amazing, amazing sort of uh, timing, timing yeah. that science kind of uh, kept pace with with his condition. It's very in that way. yeah. It's interesting with the, the the drama on at the moment. It's a sin. It's really interesting to review that of that period that you and I both lived through as young adults and um, kind of remind ourselves what that was like and that there were no rules as to who was going to survive or not survive this, you Mm. know, and that's presented in the drama as well. And you and I both know it from people that we knew who just evaded it, avoided it, escaped it, and other people who just didn't. And... It's very hard to know what's genetic, what's environmental, what's psychological and mental. And I, you know, I have a kind of take on on it in Paul's case, and I don't know how scientific it is, but Paul's attitude to to it, he really worked on his relationship with this disease. And he tells a fantastic story, and he tells, and he tells, he has told this story in Two Men Talking, which we are working our way towards, of making peace with it and going to a sacred um, kind of First Nation site in America, and making a prayer, and basically say acknowledging that this is thing was inside him that he was going to live for the rest of his days with this inside him, and. It was not helpful to think of himself as being in conflict with it. Mm, Battling. Battling it. Because it's part of him. And, I mean, look, now it's been part of him much longer than he didn't have it. You Mm. know, he's been HIV positive so much longer than he wasn't. And um, it's very powerful, I think, that, you know, his ability to frame it for himself in a certain way Mm. and kind of make peace with this thing that was part of him. Such a strong narrative that, isn't it, around disease. This is a kind of an, an aside, I know. But just that idea that you're battling it in, in you yeah. know, cancer, that is a, a dominant narrative that I think is not, that's not helpful at all. You know, my mum died very young of cancer and it's mm. like, what, so what? Is she a loser? She, yes, lost, exactly. she lost the battle and I, I don't... I don't accept that. And, and then are it, you weak if you lose it and you're strong yeah. if you don't? And, and I mean, now we're talking of the, the, the pandemic. Yeah. 
uh, as, you know, our fight, our fight against it, as if it's malicious, as if it's trying to get us. And now with the variants, it's being so sneaky. It's kind of, mm. you know, shape-shifting because it wants to get us. And... No, and it's not, it's not helpful to have a, a monster out there. I mean, this time, you know, times are hard enough in the face of a global pandemic or a cancer diagnosis. Well, and kind of having a, you know, it's an adversary who wants to, to kill you, who needs that. But just think in story terms, that's what we respond to because that's how we understand things. It's like this thing is against me, so I'm in conflict conflict mm. with it so i fight it you know it's a massive simplification but it's but it comes from you know how we process our experience doesn't it yeah the hero's journey you know we're we're the hero, we're hero the protagonist of the story so and something that's out to kill me uh, is uh, i've got to mm. i've got to be in conflict with it so so, so that, that was 1990. So that was 1990. Um, and then I was working as an actor at the Young Vic Theatre and um, for a number of years I was involved in storytelling theatre projects. And by that I mean taking written stories. We did Grimm's Tales or Brothers Grimm Tales. Um, we did The Jungle Book. And we did um, As I Lay Dying by Faulkner. And... The Grim Tales shows had a number of different iterations in which we we worked through probably 30 odd stories. And so it was taking a story told in a in one way, written, and finding a way to communicate it in another way, but not um, working with a full kind of adaptation. We worked with the poet Carol Ann Duffy, and I think initially she adapted all of them and then the two creators, Tim Supple and Melly Still, they went back to him and said, well, no, actually, just take the words that are written in the story. Don't turn this into a play. Just take the words that are written and make those words your own because it's all from translation anyway. So we didn't have a play script. We had a story text, and that's what we worked with in the rehearsal room, and it was how do we bring this to life? And we did it in lots of different ways. And Paul came to see one of those shows, and we took the shows to, to New York as well. But he saw one in London. And years later, nine, we're now 2000, he was back in London and we were out for a kind of reunion of drama school people. And right at the end of the evening, we were leaving this bar and he just kind of collared me and he said, Dan, I want to talk to you about a, a storytelling project I want to do with an old friend of mine. I want to make a piece of theatre from our stories. And I was like, oh, OK, great. Well, um, yeah, let, let's talk about it. Actually, I'm going to be in New York, uh, you know, in so many months. Why don't we all meet? And I did. And it was June 2000. And I sat in a cafe in Chelsea. And Paul and Murray Nossel came in to the room. Is so this the in- pink teacup? Yeah, I think I've got the name wrong. I call it that. And then when when I talk to Mary, he, he, he says, no, not the pink teacup. The big teacup, I think it was called. But it was quite pink in that it was in <laughs> Chelsea. And I was meeting Paul and Mary. Um, Paul and Mary are both two out gay men in the world. And um, so they'd chosen this place to meet. I don't know why. It was a lovely kind of big cafe. And we sat at this big table and I met. Murray for the first time and they both told me about where they'd got to with this idea we want to make this piece called Two Men Talking and it's us telling the story of our friendship we met when we were 12 years old in an English class Paul bullied me at school I stayed on in South Africa to do my national service Paul went to become a doctor went to drama school went to America and their lives had gone on these massively different paths and then they met quite by chance, in New York, about 20 years later. And they, there was an opportunity, I think, in this meeting to either just go, oh, hi, that's that person I knew from school, or to go a different way. And this is what they wanted to look at in this piece, really, because both of them in that moment of reconnecting um, allowed something to happen. And Paul had thought about Murray ever since he'd been at school with him 
had thought about what he'd done to him, being a bully, and and kind of acknowledging really that he that his bullying was a way of deflecting attention away from himself, from the other kind of bullies and tough boys in the class, onto somebody else, so that he wasn't the victim. So he kind of victimised Murray, and he'd regretted this. And he'd wanted to make kind of reparation. And there was this opportunity where they met after a piece of theatre. And they knew they were going to meet because Murray had written this play and um, Paul's partner, Simon, directed it. And so Paul knew, oh, my gosh, I'm going to meet this man. Hmm. And he apologised. And he, he said, you may not remember, but I did this thing to you. And Murray kind of stopped him and cut through and said, oh, I remember. I remember. And Paul Paul apologised to him in that moment. And they became best friends. And that was this little... If we think of the things that happen in our lives where, you know, there's crossroads and you choose to go one way or another, both of them in in that moment took the same path kind of Mm. thing. They could have just gone off in different directions. And he could have said, and I don't accept it. You You were mean to me. And... He could have said all sorts of things. He the, could have, you know, the temptation to not forgive and to hold on. He could on have said, to... I don't remember that at all. Yeah. And, and he actually did, or whatever. All sorts of things could have, could have happened then. But they became best friends. And there they were, the two of them in New York. But there was so much in their backgrounds that they shared. They were both white, Jewish, gay, South African men who transplanted themselves from their home in Joburg into Manhattan and so there was a lot that they um that they shared and yet they're very very different as well so they wanted to explore this through telling their stories in a piece and I sat there I sat there in this cafe and they told me this idea and they told me that they'd written some of their stories down and in my head and they also told me that they tried it out and they'd worked with a director and it hadn't really worked because the director had really tried to kind of package these stories up in a way that um, he felt was kind of palatable. So he was fictionalising bits and changing bits. And, they, and weren't they all, like, written out? Like, they had a, well, they had, a script? They and... had some. they had some stories written, yes. Um, and I sat there thinking, well, I know they've said they've got a director, but I just want to work on this. Mm. Because I was feeling something about the work I'd done at The Young Vic feeling that I had a foundation of understanding, I think, of how stories in a theatrical space can be communicated really simply. Stories as opposed to drama, as opposed to characters coming on stage in a scenario. Mm. Stories where you say once upon a time um, and how how they can be as transporting as meeting a a load of characters on stage. It could be as transporting... To have one person on a stage and one voice taking you on a journey with words and their bodies as having a whole, you know, great um, play constructed in front of you with characters. So I feel I felt I had something to offer. And I just sat there kind of listening, listening, thinking, dare I, dare I say this, dare I say this. Mm. And then I just said, I want to direct this. And they were like, great, actually, that's what we want. Because we'd kind of met for advice, really. They hadn't been really totally clear what they wanted from me. And I was like, I want to direct this. I want to bring you to London. And I think we should work on it. And that was June 2000. Right. So, um, okay. so now take us into um, a rehearsal room when you actually started to work on this. So what impact? Because because Murray had already had the experience of working on the AIDS Day programme, for example. So he mm. had this, um, you know, the ideas about listening and storytelling. Was that already, was that kind of narrative methodology kind of in place? Or what? what's well, the timeline? Really interesting. No, we didn't talk about that. That, that didn't come up. Murray completely submitted himself to me and a rehearsal process. It didn't feel at that point that his amazing experience um, working with those people in the early 90s at the AIDS Day programme where he listened to their stories, 
that was part of his history. In this moment, we were working on two men talking, and it wasn't till later that that kind of filtered through to me. What happened was they, we, I got them to the Young Vic um, about six months later, and we had a rehearsal room for a week. <clears throat> and at this point, what did I know? I knew um, I knew a little bit about what their story was. I knew that they had some. Uh, stories written down. I hadn't seen anything. They hadn't got anything on tape or anything like that. So I knew I had these five days and they were going to culminate in us showing something. So it had to start with me saying, okay, well, show me what you've got. Hmm. And they both stood up with a lectern or a music stand each and read these stories out standing up. And I was sitting there thinking, this isn't what we talked about. This, they've, they've written this all down. Because what they had said that had really ignited me when we sat in the cafe in New York was that they said, we want to be able to have a conversation on stage. We want to be able to tell any story that comes up. Mm. We want there to be this freedom that we can create to be able to just step into our, into our stories. And that really excited me, that, that liveness of it. And the fact that they weren't actors, I, I, I thought there's a challenge, but that's going to be really interesting because they're not taking on characters. They are telling us about their lived experience. Mm. So there they were standing behind these two uh, lecterns and reading this stuff. And again, I had, all, you know, it was like uh, uh, the voice inside my head, like I'd, I'd had in the cafe now were saying, what are they doing? What are they doing? Why have they got scripts? Why aren't they moving why aren't they telling me stories and so (laughs) the process right at the beginning was for me to say burn your scripts what are you doing and they're like oh but we've but this we've written these quite nice words about this it's like yeah well go and get those published but this is this is you on stage telling your story and you can't get it wrong the idea that well if I don't say these words I'm not telling the story I'm not telling it as well as I could I had to really banish this idea. And, you know, I was being, I was pushing them. I was challenging them. But at the same time, I was challenging myself because I was thinking, I'm asking them to do something I've never done. I'm asking them to do something. And is this possible? Mm. Because what I think was emerging to me as an idea was, how can we create a space where they just step onto stage and they don't know what they're going to say? And they can do it and feel safe and confident and they can allow an audience to feel safe and confident they're going to be taken on a journey and brought somewhere so um that was one of the first revelations to me that oh i think this is this is about creating a form rather than anything to do with the content really Mm, what it makes me think of and when you said you know, you said to them, this is your story. You can't get it wrong. Um, of course, that's really familiar because that's that's the idea and that's the spirit that we work with all the time when mm. we work in rooms with people mm. because people will very often, um, once they start working on their story, do, as you say, want to find the perfect iteration of the story and the perfect uh, configuration of sentences and yes. the order and all that. And we say to people... This is storytelling, not story writing. And, and, that, and it really makes me think that, of course, it took you as an actor and as a theatre director to say that to them. Because in theatre, it's, it's not about saying the line perfectly. It's not, you know, not, I mean, there might be things where you want to achieve perfection in a fight scene or in a dance or something like that. Mm. But in a rehearsal room... It's about being present so that what ends up on stage is an actor like in the present moment with the other actor. Mm. So there's not one perfect way to say a line. Mm. It, it's just being really present. I at- think, I think it, that can be a journey for actors because, you know, we, we can get hooked on a per, an idea of perfection and, you know, that you, you achieve something in a rehearsal room or in a certain performance that you then try and recreate. Mm. And I think a lot of actors know that that can be the death of it. It's not that, you know, um, 
in comedy, for example, that there isn't a really good way of timing something to, to land the humour of a moment. But you can't replicate, you can't go, oh yeah, the timing of this is 3.2 seconds because on another day mm. it might be four seconds because of that audience and that you know you have to be really present in the moment so that I think it's it's one of the reasons I would say that I learned so much about acting and theatre from these two men who weren't from that world mm. I learned so much about story about presence about connection with an audience as well which it's funny you say you learned it though because you were directing them and you, they were learning from you. But I, yeah, I kind of get well, though that it was happening, it was all happening simultaneously. You were learning about it from watching them. I think that's what, one of the reasons why it was such a powerful experience for, for all of us. And it was an experience that, that didn't just happen for a week in the Young Vic in you know, 2001. We worked um, quite intensively over the course of, of, I would say, the next five years, of course, not all the time. And I was in London and they were in New York, but we'd get together and we'd have a week or a couple of weeks or we'd be taking the performance somewhere. Or we'd be going to the Edinburgh Festival. And I would say over those first three or four years, we were really deepening in our understanding of this form we were creating. We were really deepening a way of working together that felt so comfortable and uh, kind of generative, fruitful um, and releasing that I felt that, well, it's really interesting because this ties into our work on stories as well. I would start to tell stories in the rehearsal room with them too mm. because uh, that really was important for our dynamic where I wasn't just a listener to them telling their stories, that we were all connecting around story. My stories never were told on the stage, of course, but I felt that the kind of processing of my story um, was in, was almost equal to the kind of processing of their stories that I observed in front of me as they worked on their story. I felt that my story was being churned up and explored and questioned and um, learned from as we were doing it. Mm -hmm. Well, we... I, you know, we've talked about this before, this idea of the reciprocal relationship between listening and telling. So mm. when you're listening to their stories, you're listening through the filter of all your experiences. So, of course, mm. it's churning up all your stories. But also that's a gift that you're giving to them because it enables them to go into their stories at a deeper level because you've shared your story inspired by their story. And then it's, you know, mm. there's just this kind of, virtuous loop of um, inspiring through stories and being re just reminded of memories or, or whatever it is, taken to a particular moment in time or uh, hearing an attitude or a piece mm. of dialogue or whatever it might be. But stories just creating the space for more and more stories. And yes, absolutely. I think that's what the piece was doing as well. The stories create stories for the two of them on stage that... Uh, you know, as they started to share stories and as we explored stories from so many different angles, uh, it just opened up the vaults, really, of different experiences. So much so that even after they'd been performing it for, oh, how many years after was this? I remember, I mean, it was at least five or six, if not more, years after we'd started performing it. Um, Murray came off stage one day and said to Paul, I've never heard that story. I've never mm. even heard about that character in your life before. So just to say a little more about what this form was that we created, they had a beginning and an end, and they knew the, their first words and their last letters, which is really interesting when we think about how we talk about story structure mm. now. Know your first line and know your last line. And they knew exactly what those first words were going to be, and who was going to speak them, and what the last words were going to be. And there was a kind of symmetry in that the first and last words were similar. It kind of brought us back to the beginning again. Um, and broadly, they made a choice that it would be kind of chronological, because in the first words was the, the start of the, the origin of the relationship as 12-year-old boys. So quite often, the first section would 
go through childhood to adulthood. Broadly, it, it would work towards that moment of forgiveness when they met in New York and then on. But I say broadly because there might be the first words and then one of them would tell a story from that morning. They absolutely had permission and Mm. this was a big thing, giving themselves permission. I mean, not me giving them permission, me helping them to give themselves permission to go anywhere, to say anything, to tell any story. Uh, And that could be a story from that morning or it could have been you know, from, from their childhood or wherever. Now, for, for an audience of a story, you need to feel safe, that you are in safe hands. Mm. <clears throat> and we talk about this, you know, we say that you can take your listener anywhere. You can take them backwards and forwards in time. You can project into the future and they'll go with you if they feel they're in safe hands. And so I think that structure of the opening really allowed them to feel confident and and safe and clear with how they were going to begin the piece. And I think that really set the kind of um, the tone for the audience that, okay, they know what they're doing. Mm. Also, they would spend a few minutes as soon as they came into the space and sat down just looking at the audience, just spending some time saying, we're here, house lights were up and you're there. And we're actually going to look at all of you, one after another, just spending time going, we know that you're there and you know we're here and we're all in this together. This story Mm. is going to be told, all of us, together. And I realise that this is all kind of jumbling out of me, so I hope it's kind of clear. But the other big learning as somebody who'd been involved in theatre at that stage for, you know, 15 years professionally... Um, nearly, um, was that communal event that theatre creates. That contract um, that is made between the audience and the people who are telling the story, that we are all sharing this together now, live. Which is, you know, in this this moment, this pandemic moment, it's the thing we miss Uh, being in a space with other people in their energy and that could be in a party or a bar or whatever in somebody's house but in terms of theatre that contract to come together at 7.30 to be in this space and all let everything go to focus our attention on the telling and the sharing and the receiving of this Mm. story that's Mm. the kind of contract and I think what Two Men Talking did very simply what Paul and Murray did when they came into the space and they met and connected with everybody and they launched this story. I think that's what we were trying to do. We, we, we didn't talk about it explicitly, but it was a way of saying, we're all in this together. We're all in this sharing of a story together. And actually, we're all in this life together as human beings because we're going to tell these stories now of these two white South African guys that doesn't really matter. That just happens to be the, the kind of focus that we're using to remind us all that we are human beings mm. that move through time and space and have choices and challenges and connections. And this is just what ours look like. Hmm. Oh, amazing. Amazing. I mean, I, I saw it a number of times and it's reminded me that by sort of 2000, was Edinburgh 2008? Um, I think it was 2007. We did Edinburgh and then we brought it to London in two consecutive years. So I think it was uh, 2006, uh, oh, right, seven. Right. I can't remember. So, um, so Maybe seven and eight. So I'm remembering that Jerome, our son, I guess was sort of 14 then, 14 or 15 mm, and how, 14, I think. and how in Edinburgh he just wanted to go and see it every night, you know, and that's, um, that was a real surprise, wasn't it? Yeah. And that was, yeah, oh, you know, these are stories that were completely outside his experience and he's a teenage boy. And, and yet I, I think there was something about how present they were and how, um, and how in telling the stories, how open they were, mm-hmm. and also just that feeling that you've described of we're all in this together. So it was, 
it was for him too. He got that it was for him too and he got something from it. You know, it wasn't just like it was of interest. You know, I'm always reminded of when they went to South Africa and some of their friends in South Africa said to them, you know, how do you perform this anywhere else? Because yes. these stories are about us here. Yes. And we, yet they'd how... say, they say, we know the school, we know the families, we know that, yes, this is our, <clears throat> this is our experience being reflected back to us. So, so there's that lesson about the, the more specific the story is, the paradox is then the more universal it is, the more that somebody else, whether they're a 14-year-old boy or, you know, an Edinburgh uh, grandmother, you know, uh, coming to see the show, can, can find themselves in this piece of work. I think um, that is such a powerful kind of paradox. Uh, it, it is worth really us just, just getting that. And it was part of the journey of what I got with with Paul and Murray that has absolutely fed into into narrative's work. Paul and Murray started narrative then in 2004. So, you know, these things were running in parallel. Um, but taking it to South Africa was the obvious place to take it. Um, it was it had its own challenges taking it to Johannesburg because Absolutely, people knew the people they were talking about. Mm. Absolutely, people knew the school and the family. And, and so that threw up its own questions about what am I allowed to say? What should I say? What's the purpose of this? Whose story is it? Whose story is it? And particularly mm. if, you know, Murray went through a whole kind of process for himself in talking about these other bullies that he was at school with and whether he would name them or not in Johannesburg. Those are all grown men in society in Johannesburg now, most of them, I think. And he did. He chose to name them. He was like, I am going to do this because bullies should be named. And one of them, I mean, a number of them, I think, uh, but I remember specifically one of them apologising to him afterwards um, about what he'd done. But we took it there and then we took it to Edinburgh. And yes, I mean, I wanted Jerome to see it because I wanted him to see what I'd been doing. I think it was a real surprise every day when I'd say, okay, I'm going off to theatre. And he'd say, can I come again? Hmm. They're like, yeah, <laughs> you can sit in the back row again. Absolutely. And he'd come. And it's interesting, yes, because as a 14-year-old young man, he's seeing a, a, another version of masculinity, mm-hmm. maleness, um, being being told, being shared, um, of vulnerability, um, of a way of kind of processing and talking about and thinking about your experience. Because not only would they tell stories, they'd have conversations. So the form of the piece would move between individually telling uh, of an experience. You know, when I was 12, I you know, this happened to me, um, to actually acting out some little, there was a few key moments that they would enroll the other person to kind of dramatize for the audience like will you be my mother now will Mm. you be the doctor and they would just dramatize a moment they had songs and then they just had and and, and dances even Um, and then they had conversation where one of them would say okay I just want to can I just ask you about that why why did you do that or I don't believe that Uh, that doesn't bring to they they would challenge each other Mm. um not not kind of um not de- deliberately choosing to provoke, but if something came up and they were they really were interested in it, then it, then they'd explore it. And sometimes it did get very kind of oh, hang on a minute, they're almost having a bit of an argument on stage now, and you could feel the audience riding this roller coaster. I've talked about them feeling safe. Well, in a roller coaster, you feel safe because there's a bar across mm. you, and it's like it's like the the chair you're in and the bar across you lets you feel safe but here we go where is this going we're climbing and now we're plummeting and it was a bit like that Mm. because you'd feel very safe perhaps in a moment of a story or a song not that all the stories were safe but you might feel safe in that form but then they might be in a quite heated debate and you can almost feel people leaning forwards in their seats like what they what's happening Mm. where Mm. is this all right and it was, you know, it was, it was, I've talked about creating a safe space. Paul and Murray knew that they were in a space where they could just push and challenge and dance around each other 
in exploration and in service of this idea of, of stories. Well, I think that's the great thing about this idea of working with structure in that way and, and just that core idea. It's your story and you can't get it wrong. If I think mm. about all the people who come and work with us for, you know, whatever reason it might be, whether it's creative to make something creative from it or whether mm. they have to give presentations or whether it's just about the way that they show up if they're managing a team. Just mm. that idea of understanding that if you want to tell a story to someone and you've thought about the story and you understand what the story is and you've made a decision about where it starts and when it finishes, then you don't need to script it. It's not about perfection. It's about connecting with the person who is listening to you yeah. through your story. You know, and as a performer, I can kind of get how liberating that is. It's not about perfection. It's it's about really connecting, sharing the story, and you are held in this framework, within this boundary, you know, and that keeps you safe as the performer and it keeps the audience safe and it means that, that within that then you can be as creative as you want to be, as and you can be. And it's tough and it's hard. You know, what, what, what I was asking Paula Murray to do, um, and it took a, a kind of lot of work to enable them to do it, uh, was challenging to step, to step onto a stage nightly, as they did in Edinburgh for, for a month or in uh, the Trafalgar Studios in London for three weeks, um, and not know what you're going to say. I mean, that's quite an ask. And so it is challenging, and we know that it's challenging when we ask people to do that in life, if mm. they're stepping onto a podium to give a present, presentation. And at the same time, we also know that if you can be really sure of, of that, that structure you're giving yourself, the, the, the container of your story, first line, last line, the shape of it, how amazing it can be to really be in the moment of telling it with that audience, that is, will be electric for that audience because mm. they will get that this is happening for them now just in the same way that you really get if something's scripted, it, it, is, it can deaden it. Mm. It can feel um, constructed and flat and not being spoken for my benefit in the audience. It doesn't matter if I'm here or not. Whereas actually, when, um, when, when something is told in the moment, it feels like I'm part of this. Mm. I have to be here. Me being here is actually helping shape how this story is coming out. But it's, but it's hard. Um, I know what I wanted to ask you, which leads on from um, the difficulty of doing this. Um, I know that in your work as a director, um, that you're really interested in uh, the, the story being in the body and how, we st and how it kind of, it starts mm. with the body. We hold, our, our stories are held in the cells of our body, really. Mm. You know, the mm. things that we don't even consciously remember, but our body remembers everything. So what phys what, how physically did you help them then hmm. to stand in that space and be present, as you say, night after night? It's very, it's inter very interesting because I've, I've said that they do little dances. Now, they're, they're not trained performers. I mean, yes, Paul did a postgraduate year, but they're not dancers. And the physical aspects of the piece weren't it wasn't a physical piece it was them telling stories but I realized really early on literally from that first moment of watching them stand behind these lecterns that these two incredibly smart um, articulate men really operated from the neck upwards and everything else was not really engaged and I so there's something of my experience from physical theater work that I observed them thinking Right, this is part of my work then. So the two big learnings um, in, in that rehearsal room at the Young Vic, I think the first one was went along with the get rid of your scripts, you can't get it wrong, and kind of authenticating their stories. And by that, what I mean is they had started to get into patterns where they were 
suddenly conscious that they'd been tidying up their stories, that they'd been uh, making them neater, sanitising them in some ways maybe. So, for example, in that rehearsal room, time and again, one of them would start a story. I remember Paul starting a story and saying, so I was in the car with my mum and we were on our way to Soweto and we... And he stopped, he went, we weren't going to Soweto. We were going to Alexandra Township, but nobody's heard of Alexandra Township and everyone's heard of Soweto, so I changed it. And I'd be like, change it back. <laughs> it, I mean, it's, it, make it authentic. Mm. We will get it. Don't feel it has to be tidied up for us. And time and again, when they did that, it was more interesting. Mm. It was more nuanced. It was more 3D. It was more coloured it was more authentic and that communicated so that was one thing but the other thing was the the physical thing standing behind the lecterns and one day I said okay we're going to do some physical work and we were warming up at the beginning and I got them rolling around on the floor now that's something that many actors will have done many times in many different ways but I literally had them rolling around and feeling their weight and doing different things but very much connecting with the earth, which I didn't feel that they were very connected with. And at some point in this exercise, they connected with each other. They kind of partly rolled onto each other or, you know, they touched. We finished the exercise and I said, how was that? And they looked at me with these kind of blank expressions. And one of them said, that's the most physical contact we've ever had in our lives. (laughs) And I was like, wow, you've known each other since you were 12. You've been best friends for the last I don't know 10 years Mm. and that's the most physical contact so that was like right okay I know what my work is now so I did lots of physical work with them that was nothing to do with what they were going to do on stage and telling the story was just about getting them into their physical presence getting their connection to the earth uh, getting them loose and free and realizing that their access to their stories was in their bodies kind Mm. of on a cellular level Mm. i mean the stories happened to these bodies and to specific bits of these bodies and so you you have to just know that and own that when you invoke that story when you share that story it's the same body that this happened to that Mm. is telling it Mm. it's yeah, I, I was thinking as you were describing that about um, the emotions in the stories and how, you know, in my life, if I've felt uh, pain or shame or humiliation mm. or joy, um, how it's, mm. you know, it's in, it's in the body. So to be able to access that to help you to tell the story is a really, really powerful thing. It's interesting now when we're working with people and their stories and we're encouraging encouraging in the telling of it to let go of the kind of commentary that we can habitually add to a story, the kind of interpretation, and really focus on what happened and what happened to the body and to really become aware of the physical feelings in a body where emotion is um expressed Mm. and so i think that ties into this you know if you're if you're sad how does that manifest itself in your body if you're happy if you're excited where do you feel it because if you can express that in the way you tell a story i get a chance as the listener to feel that in my body And so I get really connected to the feeling of excitement or fear or whatever it might be. And that engages me in your story. So it's interesting to talk about the body and my work with Paul and Murray and how we work on stories now. Yeah, and how, of course, reminded something that I know, which is why theatre is so amazing, theatre and storytelling, because I think because of the boundary and the communal experience, Mm. it makes it safe as an audience for us to go to feelings that are that are uncomfortable, are things that we don't want to look at, that um, 
are difficult, but we can, you know, we can take courage from being in this mm. communal moment. We're all we're all going to go there, and we know that we're going to come back out mm. into, you know, the light again. When you know, we're not going to be in the dark theatre anymore. We're going to come back out into the real world. But we've had an opportunity to um, th- all feel together what it feels like to dot dot dot. You know, to lose somebody or to. Um, I don't know. Well, well, well I think whatever, whatever that experience might be, we all go, we go there together, and that's that's the communal nature of theatre and storytelling. And I think that was was part of this whole journey with Tumin talking. You know, you you referenced the little Scottish pensioner woman, and and I know that because you were there actually um, that. That's that's not an imaginary figure because we were both there in the foyer of the assembly rooms after the piece one day when a little Scottish pensioner woman came up mm. to Paula Murray and told them how much the piece had meant to her and what it had made her reflect on her story. Now, on paper, it's, it's like, well, where's the cross-section of your experience with these two men? You know, there's so much which on paper is is different and so i think that that was the kind of climax of me understanding this thing about how how stories work there was paul and murray telling in authentic detail about these two lives and um and in quite challenging um detail in that you know one of them's HIV positive. The other one, his partner is HIV positive. Uh, there was bullying in there. There was lots of difficult moments in their life that were kind of addressed quite head on in the telling of the story. And you get an opportunity as a listener to reflect, to find your connections. Not that you're working to find your connections, but that you're your subconscious does that. It listens, it absorbs somebody else's story and it, and it takes it into its own experience as a way to understand it. So my sense is that it was cathartic for people because even though their story wasn't being played out in front of them, uh, their story was being pl- played out inside their heads. And people would say they often felt they were in conversation mm. with Paula Murray on the stage as they watched it, that it was had an intimacy for them and their story, that they were almost in a, in a triangular dynamic with them and nobody else was there. So in a, in a performance space where these two stories were being told on the stage, there were hundreds or tens of stories in the audience just playing out in people's heads um and that is something that has always fascinated me about how how sharing stories works i tell you my story you hear my story and you're reminded of your story at the same time and that you know as you've said that kind of loop i think is very powerful one of our ground rules is we remember the value of two men talking Mm. is that how it goes Mm. And, um, I mean, we've been talking about the value of, you know, making this piece of theatre and what you discovered, you know, both working with them, but also what audiences said, said about it. Yeah. But, but in the broader sense, what, what does that make you think about? What, what is the value of two men talking? It's interesting I, to a group of people the other day, I said the name of this piece. I was just talking about some origin of my work and I suddenly heard it in a different way in the climate that is out there, that that we're living in now. I suddenly thought, oh, who wants to hear two men talking? Men, that's all men do. Um, Which was interesting. I'd never kind of heard it like that before. Men talk. Um, and men's output in the world is, is you know, has, all, has had primacy for so long. I think at the time when we did it, I, I really acknowledged the, the difference in 
um, listening to two men talk in this way because, you know, men create the conflict in the world generally as well. Um, And to create a space where two men can talk and can listen because actually it's that's the kind of almost the bit in brackets i think that goes along with that that uh along with talking there there's listening and to see these two men um create a listening space for each other to tell their stories i think was quite remarkable we honor the value of two men talking um is it honor or remember? I thought it was. We remember. Re- we remember. Sorry, we remember mm. the value of two men talking. It is something about the heritage of of our work, and it is uh, something about the ability to find, I think, an eye to eye level uh, way of communicating with somebody else, where listening and talking are both equal. I think. Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, what does it mean to you? Uh, I I think it's about the it's about the active part of it. It's about the it's about the talking part of it, and implicit in that is the listening. Yeah, and we remember the value of two men talking because it's the origin story. But actually, the important thing is to anybody's from wherever they might come from being able to be together and create the space between them where they can have that kind of listening and telling that kind Mm. of conversation that that's what I think the value of it is you know our it's we talk about a world connected by listening and telling personal stories now if we could you know listen to everybody and understand everybody and be and be heard and yep. be understood yeah um yes uh, you know that would be an astonishing thing in this world where so many people feel unheard and that that's the root of so much trouble in the world yeah um so that's what it means to me just remembering the value of it like it does not have to be bells and whistles it's really about being with somebody and saying tell me your story Mm. and listening and then sharing your story you know it's like that's a start that's a pretty good start i've got a little coda and that is that we subsequently made two women talking <laughs> and uh, and it was similar and very different. And my process with the two women that I worked with, um, Benaifa Bada and Monsoon Bissell, was was again about similarity and difference between them and exploring that and sharing their stories. Um, what was fascinating was that the process of making it, although we worked in a similar way, went in a different direction and threw up different things and made a slightly different piece in that they really noticed and acknowledged and wanted to um, manifest the fact that two women talk in a very different way to two Mm. men talk two women together listen in a very different way than two men listen and so that's possibly for another conversation but it was that was fascinating and it's this conversation with you has made me think about representation as well which is such an important idea in the world that we are addressing people seeing their own experience Mm. reflected back that then honors that experience and empowers them and validates that experience and it's interesting because that idea of representation and putting that next to what I saw in Two Men Talking, where two white South African men tell their story. I don't think these ideas are incompatible. I think representation is fantastically important. And what I learned from Two Men Talking as well is that so much of our experience is shared as human beings. Mm. In spite of all the differences that we have, our ability to connect 
on a very simple human level when we share stories and listen to stories is very powerful and real. <laughs>